Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's great to be on the air, and I know it's been at least, um, oh, probably about four days since I was on the air last, so I know most of you were probably um, beginning to wonder when I would uh, resurface. Well, there's good news. I am back on the air, and I'm uh, very eager, as always, to present to you all information that is uh, relevant, information that uh, helps us better understand what it is that we're learning about, uh, regardless of uh, the historical uh, book topic series that we have been doing now, and will continue to be doing for as long as it's uh, necessary. I feel like like as though it should be um, continuing, to, continuing to go on long term, because uh, the more there is to learn, uh, based upon um, historical information that we're um, learning about, the better off we will be, uh, not just short-term, but long-term. So uh, this will be um, the last segment of uh, the the, uh, section that we're talking about uh, with regards to uh, November's Fury, the deadly Great Lakes hurricane of 1913. And what I mean by section here is with regards to um, the um, storm um, activity along uh, Lake Huron. However, that's not to say that maybe towards the uh, end of this uh, book topic discussion that uh, something else might resurface on Lake Huron. But what we have been talking about going back to the uh, previous podcast and we'll be continuing to do so now in this next one uh, in terms of segment is talking about what has um, taken effect um, on a full scale uh, matter with regards to the uh, storm's aftermath along the waters of Lake Huron. So uh, what we're going to be also uh, focusing on in this uh, segment is uh, a couple of ships whom um, whom have uh, endured uh, the wrath of the storm. We might also um, take into consideration that for all we know, based upon what we've been learning about, it, it might be fair to say that there there could be a ship or two out there that might have come away unscathed. In other words, yes, sustained damage, but uh, perhaps uh, made it the whole way, which I fe- if that is the case, I would say could be a miracle. But if I tell you all any more, there may not be a need for a, uh, a podcast segment on this matter. So, We have a lot of ground to cover, so let's uh, fasten our seatbelts and uh, get the show on the road here with another great uh, segment to uh, November's Fury, the Deadly Great Lakes Hurricane of 1913 by Michael Schumacher. Our leadoff question is the following. Uh, How many vessels altogether did Acme Transit Company own that were already out on Great Lakes waters? Uh, For those of you... um, who um, who um, may have uh, learned uh, the, from the last go-around about uh, Acme Transit Company. Is it fair to say that when we hear the word transit that it means uh, something that pertains to transportation? Yes. Transit is another uh, word for um, how many days that it might take a shipment to get from uh, origin to finish. And if I'm not mistaken, isn't Acme Transit Company located out of Cleveland, Ohio? Yes. And uh, what? Uh, which of the Great Lakes is located on uh, Cle- right around Cleveland, Ohio? Is it Erie or Ontario? Erie. So uh, how many vessels altogether did Acme Transit Company out of Cleveland, Ohio, own that were already out on Great Lakes waters? 
I'll give you a number range. It's between 7 and 10. The answer is 8. So uh, this next ship we're going to be talking about just so happens to be um, one of uh, eight vessels owned by Acme Transit Company called the H.B. Hawgood. Hawgood spelled H-A-W-G-O-O-D. So the H.B. Hawgood is um, a 434-foot-long straight-decker vessel. Uh, she's 10 years old. She's out on Lake Huron's waters facing a blinding snowstorm with winds gusting at 75 miles an hour and heavy seas going over the pilot house. You know, folks, remember the pilot house being the facility where the where the um, map and the wheel rooms are uh, intertwined, or rather, I should say, connected. So I can't imagine all of a sudden now, here you are out on the water facing a snowstorm, and not just a snowstorm, but a blinding snowstorm. And what we mean by blinding snowstorm is that visibility is so bad to where you cannot see anything in front of you or uh, anything um, from the sides. I mean, it's it's like it's worse than fog. You know, when we're driving on the road and, you know, we're driving through fog and fog can be so bad. Luckily for a car, depending on where you might be driving along the road, you, you might have the opportunity to pull over to the side and wait it out until it... Um, until visibility is better, but luckily along the roads, there are um, fog lights that um, enable you to uh, guide your distance between what's in front of you. So this way, it would prevent you from going so fast to where if you didn't see what was in front of you, uh, if you weren't careful, then yes, you could hit that other car head on. Um, unfortunately for these vessels, there are, um, I mean, there are some forms of technology out there, but I think it might be fair to say that they don't have anything like the equivalent of fog lights or, you know, they don't have anything that says fog advisory. Um, like we have sometimes on the roads, we'll have an electronic board sign that says fog advisory from such and such time. You know, the only way uh, captains are going to know, uh, for example, how long a fog advisory or warning is going to last is through a, a weather bulletin and also through uh, communication through other uh, ships. So as a matter of fact, uh, as we progress further along in this uh, podcast segment, we will learn about some other um, matters that pertain to uh, safety with regards to um inclement weather conditions uh, involving, say, fog, for example. So, nonetheless, uh, the H.B. Hawgood is um, dealing with winds gusting at 75 miles an hour and heavy seas going over the pilot house, and so that uh, makes things all the more treacherous. I don't expect you all to know this person's name, um, who is a crew member aboard the H.B. Hawgood, but... Um, I think for those uh, for those of you uh, young people out there who have been listening to my podcasts, I think you all will really appreciate this. All right, uh, does anybody know who Edward Canaby is? His last name is spelled K-A-N-A-B-Y. I doubt many of you all would know who Edward Canaby is, and that's okay, but I'm here to tell you all. Edward Canaby was um, the H.B. Hawgood's um, wheelsman. In other words, he was... Um, he was at the uh, helm um, steering the ship. Do you want to know how old uh, Edward Canaby was at the time of this storm? 
I'll give you a number. It's between 17 and 20 years of age. The answer is 18. He was only 18 years old at the time of the storm. So can you imagine being uh, in Edward Canaby's shoes, being 18 years old, you are the ship's wheelsman, and you are facing a storm that you, unlike any other ones that you have seen in your lifetime. Now, A.C. May, who is the H.B. Hawgood's uh, captain, he's trying to uh, do whatever it takes to seek shelter from the storm. However, he has um, made a mistake that is a, um, a similar one because he is not the only captain who um, chose to um, go along uh, Lake Huron, or rather I should say go along Lake Huron's waters in the midst of the storm. Captain um, May, along with other captains, um, ignored uh, the storm warnings issued by the Weather Bureau. You know, when the Weather Bureau tells you that there's a storm, and of course for some of these uh, vessels, they probably didn't find out about the storm until well after the uh, warnings had been issued. But for some of these captains, if they knew early on what was going on, you know, many of us are wondering, why are they still going out there? For some of these captains, they have no other choice. And we learned from the previous podcast segment that um, shipping uh, company officials, most notably from Acme Transit Company and from other uh, places, um, you know, if um, the shipping season hadn't been good, and company officials are desperate to make up for lost revenue from past, um, from past um, what do you call it, um, shipping excursions. They're going to do whatever it takes to uh, get that money, even if it means putting their crew out on the um, waters in uh, the most unforeseen uh, circumstances to where, you know, there might be a greater chance of them not coming home alive. So it is unfortunate that we have company officials who are more concerned about commerce and profits versus safety. But of course, as I said in the last podcast, you know, when crewmen, captains and their crewmen go out on the waters in November, just as around the time when the skies are beginning to turn gloomy and more uncertainty sets in in November, this is also a time where it would be fair to say that you have to separate uh, boys from men. In other words, who's man enough to go out into the waters when um, when Mother Nature is at her worst and still survive and um, deliver the goods and be able to come back home safe? So this is really, in a sense, a game of survival of the fittest. So for Captain May, he took his vessel to a place north of Saginaw Bay, uh, prior to uh, stopping, and he uh, determined that the retreat south towards the St. Saint Clair Saint River was his was going to be his safest bet. So in other words, he's not uh, going to risk it, but the bigger question is going to be, can Captain May uh, make, it, make it to his destination prior to any uh, worst-case scenario uh, situation from happening? In other words, you know, yes, he may have a plan in store, but is Mother Nature going to allow him to uh, make it to um, enough shelter to where um, he and his crew would be spared from the worst-case um, worst scenarios? 
We don't know, but we could probably find that out here soon. Captain May ordered uh, to have his ship's anchors dropped. Okay, this is good. When you drop anchor, you are, um, st you are uh, seeking shelter. You are uh, stopping somewhere until, until it's clear enough to uh, continue on to where you need to go. But despite the anchors getting uh, lowered, or rather I should say dropped, despite them being lowered to the floor, did the anchors um, fully um, drop to where uh, the ship stayed in one place, folks? Nope. Wind and The wind and the waves were so strong, think about it, 75 mile an hour winds. These winds are so strong, folks, to where the boat got pushed. Not only it got, did it get pushed, but it got, but it, um, but it uh, was in a dragging mode, to where um, the anchors were dragged eight miles. The anchors were dragged eight miles um, below, that is, uh, underneath um, the the vessel. They were dragged eight miles before Captain May before Captain May abandoned his game plan. I can't imagine just such sheer uh, wind speed so intense to where the anchors got dragged eight miles. That tells you something about how force, how powerful Mother Nature is even from below. Just because you've uh, dropped anchor doesn't mean that your anchors are secure. They might be below, but hey, nature can do things from below that you have no control over in the same manner as it as from above. Given that dropping the anchors had failed, uh, did Captain May fear that the H.B. Hoggood would hit land? Yes, he had every reason to fear that that would be the case. Considering he heard uh, the breakers, does anybody know what breakers are? It has nothing to do with car brakes, I can tell you that. Breakers are heavy sea waves that um, break. Okay, that should be an automatic indication right there, given that breaker, we, we are trying to figure out about breakers. Breakers are heavy sea waves that break into white foam along shallow areas of water. Marked by, like those shallow areas of water are marked by sandbar, reef, a rising lake floor. This is all happening prior to seeing shore. So yes, you could be right near the shore, but if these, um, if, but if you hear breakers, that is heavy sea waves breaking into white foam, that's not a good sign because you don't know what lies below. You know, yes, you might, like I said, you might see the shore, but you don't know what rise it's what's rising below to that to where your ship might um, might completely break on you as a result of uh, running aground. Now, given the proximity of where the vessel was in relation to uh, the breakers, Captain May issued the following command to wheelsman Edward Canaby. Turn! Turn! The vessel slammed forward by seas from behind. Okay, folks, so it's not so much what's in front of us, it's, from, it's what's behind us. The seas were so powerful from behind to where this vessel, uh, to where the vessel moved so quickly, to where it ended up hitting a sandy beach, 
The force was so hard, folks, to where everyone in the pilot house was sent flying. Think about it, folks. I mean, we had they had no time to slow down. The force from behind took them by surprise to where everyone um, in that pilot house was sent crashing. It's a miracle that um, that those in the pilot house even survived. When you consider it, it wouldn't have taken much to be thrown. But that's um, but that's how powerful this all was. The Hoggoods running aground was due to her running out of water. Well, think about it. If you're running out of water, you're you're not going to have any control over where you can um, sh where you can shift direction. I mean, the direction you're going is pretty much the only direction you're going to um, be able to. Um, to have control over and whether or not you um, make it out alive, well, that's up to Mother Nature. But the Hoggoods running aground was due to her running out of water. The bow section was completely out of the water. The bow meaning the front end. And listen to this, folks. The vessel was 100 feet from the Lake Huron Hotel. The crew remained aboard the ship as any or all efforts to abandon ship were deemed unsafe, given just how bad the weather itself was. So can you imagine um, guests at the Lake Huron Hotel waking up to this loud, thunderous sound? You know, for some of these guests, they might have thought, that, I don't know if anybody would have thought of this in 1913, but a loud, thunderous sound or a sound that would have been very unfamiliar might have been like that of an earthquake. But no, uh, they um, came outside to see that 100 feet from the hotel lied the, um, a ship whose bow section was completely out of the water. To them, to these uh, guests, they had never probably seen anything like this before. So for them, I guess you could say it was breaking news for its time. Uh, given how bad uh, weather conditions deteriorated on Lake Huron, was it deemed dangerous to launch lifeboats? Oh, absolutely. Launching lifeboats in general was very risky, considering three volunteers manned a lifeboat in an attempt to reach the shoreline of where another vessel, being the William Nottingham, a 376-foot ship, had hit a reef near Lake Superior's Apostle Islands. Yeah, the Apostle Islands, uh, I've, I've heard about them, um, but they are a very um, secluded set of islands that are, you know, right, that are part of Lake Superior, but the um, method of transportation and getting to them is not by car. It's either by uh, boat or airplane. So for the William Nottingham, um, this ship... Uh, pretty much kind of met the same um, the same end result as the H.B. Hawgood. Uh, the Nottingham ran aground uh, due to running out of water. But as for this um, lifeboat, or these volunteers who um, tried to get into a lifeboat to, um, to save the uh, crewmen on the Nottingham, uh, the waves were so ferocious to where um, the waves in general um, forcefully moved the lifeboat against the 
against its side to where the men were thrown into the water and never seen again. Man, I tell you, it's one thing to um, get in the lifeboat and try to do something that's admirable, but when you're dealing with um, waves that they don't have to be necessarily 30, 40, or 50 foot waves, but if the waves are bad enough to where they are causing all kinds of havoc, yeah, they'll um, they'll knock you off your boat and they'll send you um, into the water. And if the waves are coming so fast, they might suck you uh, down underneath the surface to where you might not be able to come back up alive. And and it might be fair to say that for these uh, three volunteers, they might not have had a life jacket on. Had they had a life jacket on, they there's a chance that they could have survived. Um, but given just how... Um, drastic the temperatures had changed um it might be even fair to say that they might not have survived and that hypothermia could have set in we have to keep in mind too that yes early on in november of 1913 it had been unseasonably warm but man all of a sudden within the last few days since the time the storm first took center fold on november 7th the temperatures have dropped drastically to now where we're talking about extreme frigid temperatures so Yes, it would be fair to say that that had these uh, three volunteers worn lifeboat life life jackets, pardon me, I should say, even if they had worn life jackets, there's no guarantee they could have survived given the um, given the uh, water temperature. The William Nottingham crew, though, stayed aboard the vessel. Okay, uh, so by staying aboard the vessel. Does this automatically mean that they have heat long-term? Actually, short-term. They still have enough coal to um, put into the boiler for heating purposes that will keep them warm, but they don't have enough coal that could last um, for an entire week. So after running out of, if they are to run out of coal, what would they have to do to uh, be able to still uh, survive uh, for warmth purposes. Does the William Nottingham have um, cargo on her ship? Yes. So what did the crewmen of the William Nottingham do, folks? They did something uh, out, of, um, dis out of, you could say out of desperation, but out of pure necessity. They burned the cargo. Not just the cargo, but all of it, where it got fueled into the boiler, and therefore they had uh, enough heat to sustain them long term. This ship was carrying a lot of cargo. I don't know how much it was in terms of tonnage, although I'm sure it probably would not have made the um, the shipping company uh, who whom owned the William Nottingham happy that their cargo had to be um, had to be burned, but. <laughs> I think it'd be fair to say that even cargo itself could be replaced. Yes, reordering cargo just doesn't happen overnight, but when you are dealing with a situation where it's a matter of life and death, the cargo can be replaced. You as individuals can't be replaced. So the crewmen on the William Nottingham are to be commended for doing something out of the ordinary, something that required reinventing in terms of survival, not just survival, but perhaps survival of the fittest. What do you do? Okay, if coal runs out, you just have to burn whatever you can of your cargo where it will get fueled into the boilers for heating purposes. 
All right, let's move on to another ship um, that we will talk about here, but we're also going to talk about this other ship in another podcast segment down the road. But I think it's important that this uh, ship gets um, discussed. Um, First off, before we find out about the name of the ship, we've got to know um, who's commanding the ship. Who is uh, William Hagen? Is he the captain of the Howard M. Hanna Jr.? Yes, he is. Is the ship more than 10 years old or less than 10 years old? The ship is seven years old. She's 480 feet long. And Captain Hagen, is he a long-term veteran of Great Lakes sailing? Yes, he is. He's a 25-year veteran. The Howard M. Hanna Jr. departed Lorraine, Ohio on Saturday, November the 8th with 9,120 tons of coal headed for Fort William, Ontario. Now, does anybody know where Lorraine is? Uh, Lorraine, Ohio is outside of Cleveland, so it's obviously uh, somewhere on the outskirts of Lake Erie. So for the Howard M. Hanna, she is her, her destination is Fort William, Ontario. She sails along Lake Erie smooth, but come um, sometime after 5 a.m. on Saturday the 9th, or on Sunday the 9th, pardon me, the winds are blowing at about 15 miles per hour from the northwest on Lake Huron, but once the wind changed and the speed had increased, uh, the weather took a bad turn for the worse, exposing the Hannah to poor visibility, including a terrible snowstorm. At 6.30 a.m., icy water made its way into her engine room doors without letting up, and by 7.30 a.m., The waves destroyed the ship's pilot house windows to uh, tearing off the top of a wheelhouse to um, tossing its to tossing the vessel's propeller out of the water. I had never thought in my lifetime that waves this ferocious could do such stuff to vessels. But you know what? Mother Nature, as I've said before, and I'll say it again and might say it in another podcast segment here, Mother Nature does have a mind of her own. And when it comes to the month of November, um, when the skies are, are gloomy, uh, Mother Nature will do will throw any kind of uh, one-two punch at you, no matter how big or small it is. The ships are not immune. The ships will feel her um, effects. But I cannot imagine having uh, my pilot house um, windows be uh, taken out to um, the top of the wheelhouse being gone to a propeller being tossed out of the water. It's important to um, be mindful and yet respectful of what these um, storms can do, no matter how sophisticated your ship is. more often than not, nature will have the final say as to whether or not your ship will survive. As the Howard M. Hanna Jr. fought against Mother Nature's wrath, did Captain Hagen know the exact direction of where his vessel was going? No, he didn't. However, based upon the vessel's current point, Captain Hagen did know that his vessel was near the entrance of Saginaw Bay. Just a few hundred yards away 
lied the Port Austin Lighthouse. Captain Hagen recognized it. How did he recognize this lighthouse? By recognizing its beam, which reflected off the ship's uh, port bow. In other words, the beam meaning the light that was reflecting. So the bow being in front of you, the, the front section of the ship, with that light, that it helped uh, Captain Hagen realize that, um, that a lighthouse was not far away, being the Port Austin Lighthouse, and that the lighthouse could serve as a helpful beacon uh, in ensuring that perhaps uh, his ship could be spared from the worst-case scenario. Now, I don't think many of you all would know about the Port Austin Lighthouse. I didn't know anything about this uh, lighthouse until I read the book. Uh, but before we get into the Port Austin Lighthouse, I'll, I'm going to ask you all this question. Given that there are five uh, Great Lakes, well, I'll ask you a couple of questions. How many states are surrounded by uh, the Great Lakes? Do any of you all want to take a guess? Is it more than 10 states? Well, I'll tell you what. Why don't we find out um, right now just how many states uh, border Great Lakes waters? Uh, New York is one with Lakes e Lake Erie and Ontario. Pennsylvania with Lake Erie. Well, when we think of Pennsylvania, think of northwest Pennsylvania around Erie, which is uh, in between uh, Cleveland and Buffalo. Ohio. Indiana. Michigan, Illinois, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. Folks, that's eight states right there. Eight states um, who have uh, who have boundaries who that are um, that include uh, Great Lakes uh, bodies of water. Does anybody want to take a guess at which state, at which one of those states, has more lighthouses? along Great Lakes waters than any other state? I'll give you an answer. It's Michigan. Why Michigan? Well, think about how many, um, think about how many, uh, how many of the Great Lakes um, surround Michigan. Well, think about Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Up Michigan's UP has Lake Superior, Lake Huron, and on Michigan's mainland you have um, Lake uh, Michigan and Erie. So if you look at the state of Michigan, uh, Michigan is surrounded by four of the um, Great Lakes. So it would make practical sense for Michigan to have the most uh, number of lighthouses of all of the uh, states that surround uh, Great Lakes bodies of water, considering uh, to the east, on the eastern end of uh, Michigan is Lake Erie, uh, to the north is um, Lake uh, Superior, being the westernmost of our Great Lakes, and uh, to the um, to the south, I guess, depending on where it is, where you are in Michigan, you would have um, Lake Michigan, and to um, I guess you would say the northeast would be Lake Huron. So. There you have it, folks. So when you think of uh, Michigan, you think of not only Michigan having the most uh, lighthouses, but four of the five Great Lakes um, surround uh, the state of Michigan. So Port Austin Lighthouse, is that lighthouse located on uh, Lake Huron or Lake Erie? 
The answer is Lake Huron. This uh, lighthouse, folks, um, let me ask you this. Does Port Austin Lighthouse, does this, um, was it built before the Civil War or, af or years after the Civil War? Matter of fact, uh, the Port Austin Lighthouse dates back to 1878, one year after uh, the Reconstruction era came to an end. So think about it, folks. The Port Austin Lighthouse is 144 years old, given that it was built back in 1878. And it's uh, stationed about two and a half miles north, north of Port Austin. Now, does anybody know exactly where Port Austin is in uh, Michigan? Is it in... Is it north of Grand Rapids or um, north of uh, cities like Flint and Detroit? Port Austin is uh, north of uh, Flint and Detroit. Now, Flint is, uh, you know, Detroit's um, not far from the Michigan-Ohio line, and Detroit is actually closer to Toledo, Ohio, which is in the northwest part of Ohio. But uh, Flint is uh, technically halfway between Detroit and uh, Port Austin. So, the main purpose behind why the Port Austin Lighthouse was built, I mean, there are lots of reasons, folks, for why lighthouses were built. And for those of you who were with me a year ago when we talked about Brilliant Beacons, The History of the American Lighthouse by Eric J. Dolan, one main reason for why lighthouses were built was because so many vessels ran aground. They um, got too close to uh, water's edge just when they thought it was safe to dock or safe to, um, you know, safe to, uh, yes, basically safe to dock. It turns out they weren't because the closer they were getting into water's edge, many instances they were running aground. They were hitting shoals. They were flattening out to where cargo was destroyed. A vessel was no longer salvageable, and it even included loss of life. So the lighthouses were meant to serve as beacons that could help um, ships remain um, safe along the waters, even from, a fur, from uh, far out. Um, and of course, with uh, Jean-Augustin Fresnel, who um, came up with those Fresnel lenses that you all, many of you all have heard of, the Fresnel lenses are the, were the most uh, revolutionary um, lighting method to um, help ensure that um, ships, uh, whether they were in short-range distance or long-range distance, uh, still, it helped ensure that their uh, passage along the waterways was smooth. And while, yes, there were these uh, Fresnel lenses, um, what it basically, uh, what the, the overall intention was to uh, greatly reduce the number of accidents that were occurring along the waters um, and that had taken place from uh, time from years before. So, like any other lighthouse, uh, the Port Austin Lighthouse um, had an important role, and not only to make sure that ships were coming through the waters um, safe um, in terms of arrival and um, departure, the Port Austin Lighthouse, its main purpose was to warn um, sailors of what lied ahead. Well, what lied ahead? What, what's different? There's a reef called the Port Austin Reef. This reef is a dangerous section of land rising from Lake Huron's floor. Okay, so think about it, folks. This is land that's not visible. It, it's, it's, it's down below where we, don't, we have no way of knowing where it's, where it's exactly located, 
But if this land rises out of nowhere, it could uh, damage the bottom section of not only of um, of the uh, vessel that um, being the Howard M. Hanna, but it could do damage to any other kind of vessel. Well, it just so happens that um, Captain Hagen requested that um, his anchors be dropped. He did that. But did they uh, fall into place, folks? No. I tell you, Mother Nature isn't letting up. Mother Nature is having the final say here, folks. The Hannah ends up drifting southwest in a southwesterly direction to where she collided into the rocks late evening, November 9th. The Howard M. Hannah Jr. smokestack came off to having her hatch covers get torn apart along with the spar deck where the hatches are located. All of this this uh, damage, folks, resulted in a major split or a massive crack that allowed water gushing so fast inside to where life rafts and lifeboats came apart, including communication lines being completely severed. I tell you, folks, when uh, when the uh, middle of your ship starts to crack because of all the water that's uh, coming in, you know, a ship can only endure but so much water coming in. But if it takes on more water versus um, her ability to pump out the water that's come in, the ship's not going to be able to stay afloat. You know, a ship can only taken but so much water but if it can't pump it out in enough time uh, it's doomed it almost kind of reminds me in a sense of what happened um i can't make a complete comparison but um but when the titanic struck the iceberg over a two and a half um hour course span uh that she remained afloat until she sank water um went into more than four of her watertight bulkhead compartments and the ship was only designed to stay afloat if four watertight bulkhead compartments flooded. Well, the sad part was that more than four of them um, flooded, resulting in the ship taking on more water than she could handle to where her um, bow eventually rose out of the water so high into the air that she eventually splits into two. And as we all know now, the stern and the bow being 3,200 some odd, two and a half miles down below the bottom of the North Atlantic's floor, North Atlantic Ocean's floor, the bow and the stern are in separate um, fields. So when a ship takes on that much water from inside, I mean, no matter how big or small, the ship can't, the ship's bow can make its way out of the water to where it can, the ship itself can split in two. The Hannah's crew uh, were scattered about from various places on this vessel. On the vessel, the officers, wheelsmen, and deckhands uh, stayed in deck behind the pilot house, whereas the engine crew stayed in the engine room, but the biggest issue pertained to how the crew would make its way off the vessel. That's uh, scary to me right there. I can't imagine, you know, think about this, you know, not everybody's in one place, but how are you going to survive? Well, I will tell you all this. Um, when we get to um, another podcast segment um, down the road, uh, we will learn more about the um, about how the crew of the Howard M. Um, Hanna Jr. vessel does survive. 
because uh, they, they will survive, but that is another story onto itself for another podcast. What I do think is important to talk about pertains to a ship that um, did something um, incredible. Is it fair to say that we'll be talking about a ship that came away on a better note, whose fate ended on a more uh, positive end? Yes. Did any boats going north on Lake Huron come away victorious in the battle against nature? Yes. Only one. Did you hear that, folks? Only one. This was the J.F. Durston, which was bound for Milwaukee, Wisconsin, with a supply of coal. The Durston moved the entire way along Lake Huron from November 8th to the 9th, being the weekend. And during the weekend, this was when the storm was at its greatest intensity level. The J.F. Durston uh, was less than 10 years old. She was officially launched in 1908, making her five years old during the 1913 hurricane. The vessel itself uh, had an experienced veteran crew being equivalent to a first-tier level. Well, isn't it fair to say that some of the, that these other ships have had good crew? I, I would think they have. I, I don't think it would be right for me to judge. But sometimes um, fate is on, how do I say it? Sometimes some crew, crewmen and their captains just get lucky. I mean, don't we wish that all ships could survive in storms like these? Yes. Sadly, we've learned that a lot of ships haven't made it. But isn't it fair to say that somehow there's always one that does? So how is it that this veteran crew aboard the J.F. Durston, how did they turn out to be one of the um, elite um, few that somehow just flat out managed to survive? Well, James B. Watt, the Durston's captain, was born into a family whom were no strangers to the profession. By 1913, Captain Watt had 33 years of experience along Great Lakes waters. Whereas Captain Watt knew every inch of water per square mile, side by side, along the waters, Edward Sampson, the chief engineer, he knew everything about how an engine room was to operate. Both men communicated frequently with one another throughout the storm's presence. I tell you, so it's good to have some very, very seasoned veterans who know everything there is to know. Unfortunately, the storm did take out the Durston storm doors. And if any of you all aren't familiar about what storm doors are, they are um, a door that's placed in front of a main outside door to protect, to provide an extra layer of protection from bad weather. Unfortunately, uh, Mother Nature got the better of the uh, storm door by taking it out. And then uh, window shutters came apart. And if that wasn't bad enough, water coming down below decks made things worse. What element might have uh, spared the J.F. Durston from sinking altogether? What, what element? 
in terms of weather could have could and did in fact save the Durston from sinking altogether. I never would have thought this, but believe it or not, folks, it this element was the savior. Ice. How did ice save the Durston? Well, it turns out, folks, that ice itself had covered all of the vessel's hatch covers, meaning those um, sheets that basically um, that are uh, secured in place to where water can't get through um, inside, uh, destroying the car, not just destroying the cargo, but water coming in so fast to where it would cause the ship to roll or uh, list. It would cause the ship to um, to uh, run aground, uh, basically rock back and forth to the point where, um, you know, the ship <laughs> might just um, be doomed. So by with this ship uh, being icy, the uh, hatch covers were uh, protected and there was uh, there were barriers formed that protected the windows in the cabins, meaning that the waves were not able to fully destroy the ship to where she was no longer operable. So in other words, there was enough ice in areas um, needed to pro to basically protect uh, what was left of the ship from being um, taken out. Yes, there were some things that were damaged, but there was enough ice to where um, the ship um, somehow did manage to um, miraculously survive. However, um, ice did appear on the Durston's exhaust ventilators where smoke and gases did become visible. Okay, well, that's not good. So how, what was done to ensure that, um, that the ship didn't catch on fire? Well, the men in the engine room survived thanks to gas masks strapped on them. So, by having gas masks, folks, that means that you are not take you're not inhaling the smoke or the gases. The gas masks are meant to um, protect you from the uh, inhalation that's coming inward. Monday, November tenth, the Durston finally did anchor in Mackinac. How long do you think this trip took? This trip took 40 hours, folks, but in the entire crew survived the ordeal. And I think it's fair to say that because you had a veteran captain and a veteran chief engineer who knew how to work together one-on-one -on -one and who, uh, and who um, provided a state of calmness to their crew and having a little luck on their side in terms of having ice covering all the hatch covers along with forming a barrier that did protect the windows in the cabins, that meant the communication was still there. Had the um, had the uh, windows in the cabins been taken out, I don't think I don't really know what kind of uh, chances for survival there would have been, but it would have been very very slim. What are lightships? Does anybody know what exactly are lightships? Well, we know what lighthouses are, but what are lightships? They are vessels that operate or function like a lighthouse, but they, um, but they stand out as towers, which assisted ships coming and going along bodies of water. In other words, these um, vessels were tied to one spot, but they were tied to a spot via mushroom-shaped anchors. Well, of course, lighthouses stay in one spot, but these lightships... Um, 
are basically towers. They may not be as sophisticated as lighthouses, but they do have a. Um, but they did serve as a, a fundamental uh, presence. And light ships were not immune from Mother Nature's wrath during the 1913 hurricane storm. Uh, sailors, though, relied upon the, the light ships for various uh, purposes, most notably getting through the St. Clair River. The light ships were vital in uh, fog and snow, where captains depended upon light signal and foghorn. Listen to this, folks. Light signals and foghorns. What were these been used for? For distance purposes that help determine um, safe zones for ships passing one another on uh, opposite sides, as well as anything um, uncertain in their paths, okay? Like rocks, shoals, reefs, sandbars. So, you know, when a foghorn is, um, when you hear a foghorn, it's a loud um, warning sound, but it's also meant to tell you that, hey, be careful because another ship is coming in the opposite direction. Do not get too close to this uh, ship's path. Otherwise, you are going to hit it head on. If not head on, you're going to hit it in a different direction to where it's going to uh, cause um, major damage, not just to the ship in the opposite direction, but to both ships involved. Light ships were used up until 1985, folks, and they were done away with, and were, um, and what we, what took the place of them were um, automated um, objects. So, we have to keep in mind that uh, technology has changed over time, but uh, light ships, believe it or not, were still in use up until uh, the er mid 1980s. And for those of you who were with me when we talked about Brilliant Beacons, A History of the American Lighthouse, um, lighthouse innkeepers uh, were uh, working the lighthouses up until, in some instances, up until um, the start of the Great Depression. Uh, in some instances, um, up until after World War II, uh, the Coast Guard basically uh, went about... Um, taking over all the duties that were um, assigned to um, lighthouse keepers under what was then the lighthouse uh, service station. Had the weather from uh, Sunday, November 9th, 1913, been the most severe on Lake Huron ever seen? Yes. For starters, this storm brought about carnage on a scale never imagined possible, considering eight vessels sunk with their entire crews perishing. Secondly, close to 250 sailors at best lost their lives in a storm that exceeded past average lifespans of one to two days. Third, Mother Nature did things that hadn't been seen before, from snow being piled into four to five foot drifts to strong winds removing roofs off houses, boats grounding along rocks, multiple boats, that is, folks, telephone and telegraph lines being knocked out of service. The majority of the crewmen's bodies recovered after the storm had subsided was determined by search and rescue officials that those whom perished along Lake Huron saw their watches stop functioning between the time frame of 8 to 11.30 p.m. on November 9th when the storm had reached its greatest levels of intensity. 
I can't imagine being a part of a search and rescue um, mission. And, you know, it's one thing to rescue a couple of people's bodies. And, yes, that's sad because of the news that you would have to relay to the extended family. But knowing that close to 250 sailors or just right over 250 sailors lost their lives, knowing that probably the majority of those sailors that lost their lives were on one of the eight vessels that sunk with their entire crews perishing. This is a loss of life that has never, ever um, been dealt with on any of the Great Lakes. But to have more than 250 men perish in one storm alone, think about how many uh, families will now be impacted by the loss of life. Think about how many children are left without fathers. Think about families who have lost sons. Think about uh, families whom have now lost an uncle or a cousin, some uh, relative. Uh, the bottom line is that everyone feels pain, sorrow. Communities are, are changed forever by this, especially communities whose livelihoods are dependent upon uh, the shipping industry as their job, who are dependent upon uh, the ports for uh, transportation coming in and out. This is something that uh, can't be escaped, no matter what your um, connection may be uh, to the community. Everybody knows everyone, and everyone feels a sense of loss. Well, we've covered a lot of ground, and um, when I'm on the air again next, we're going to uh, be uh, talking about uh, Cleveland, Ohio. And I'm sure many of you all are wondering, well, we've already, we already know that Acme uh, Transit Company um, owned eight vessels and their headquarters is in uh, Cleveland but what is it what else is there to know about Cleveland that is uh, worth talking about well when I'm on the air again next we're gonna uh, learn about how Cleveland uh, became the epicenter of a unexpected storm that had um, that had that that had rippling effects we'll put it that way so when I'm on the air again next, uh, let's be prepared to learn more about how Cleveland, Ohio, is impacted by a storm that many in the city did not see coming. Thank you for your time, as always, and uh, thank you again for being such ardent supporters. Uh, when I'm on the air again next, we will have more to discuss in November's Fury, the deadly Great Lakes hurricane of 1913 by Michael Schumacher. Take care for now and stay safe.